0: This is what they learned, because it could be confusing at the beginning, but it also allows you to develop your own leadership style. But it ultimately works, and in China, that's the only thing that matters, if it works.
1: Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious what were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time.
2: Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth where we skip feel-good, happy talk, and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated, or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the hard truths playbook you never got.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. What does China have to do with accelerating your career and understanding power and influence? Get ready for a spirited conversation with Gabor Holsch, GM and founder of Campanile Management Consulting to discuss his latest book, Dragon Suit, The Golden Age of Expatriate Executives in China. Gabor is an east-west cultural leadership expert and we're going to focus on his book which captures insights from his more than 20 years in China where he has advised, coached, and trained multinational executives and their teams. That ringside seat, being privy to the thoughts, challenges, inner feelings of top leaders, combined with his renaissance background and training in languages, philosophy, and diplomacy, really, I believe, puts Gabor in a unique bridging role, As someone who can help decipher and clearly communicate between East and West, China and the rest of the world. Gabor, congratulations on your book, Dragon Suit, and welcome back to 97% Effective.
0: Michael, thank you very much for that and also for having me back on the show.
1: Awesome. We're going to go right at it with your book. Why should... Listeners care about China.
0: We live in an age when you don't come to China or you don't do business with China, then eventually China will come to you in so many forms. So, uh, you can run a, a chain of green groceries or you can run an IT business or you can run any kind of professional services or manufacturing in one way or another through an expanding global chain. You are going to interact with China in one way or another. And it's not easy. It, is not, it doesn't, doesn't come naturally to most people.
1: Your book is really a capping achievement on, on spending the last two decades there. What were you seeking to achieve with Dragon Suit and why should those out there listening pick it up?
0: Basically the book came together from two impressions. One of them is that as I traveled in the world and for the last two decades I was based in China so they know that's where I was coming from. I talked to a lot of people who tried to decipher what on earth is happening in China. And then on the other hand, on a daily basis, as an executive coach, I was talking to, first of all, China-based international executives and also Chinese executives who were promoted to high-level leadership positions in multinational companies. And I I heard a lot of voices that I thought were not adequately utilized. Mm. So very often, people all over the world who try to understand China a little bit better, they relied on biased or incomplete information from press sources, from uh, people who who did their best, but you know, information from China is scarce. And on the other hand, I spent my days talking to people who had firsthand and very deep insight into what is happening and what's going to happen next in China, and I thought these two things are just not matched enough. So I wanted to use these voices of the dragon suits, as I call China-based international executives, to explain how to interact with China more constructively
1: mm. for those of out there who maybe don't know as much about China. One of the first things that comes to mind is you know censorship and being very careful these days. As you were writing this book, were there considerations of things that you actually self-censored or, or, or were
0: careful about writing? I think there are a number of sides to that question. The, the mm-hmm. first one is that you really have to be somebody very important or you have to write something that is that it has immense consequences in order to be really in trouble with, with censors in China. So you have to be aware that there are events at International Chambers of Commerce inside of the PRC, the People's Republic of China itself, that are fairly critical about government policies and so on. But, you know, as long as it is a it is a forum that is not in direct contradiction with uh, the local laws and regulations, and of course, if it's not somebody highly visible who can, I don't know, change the, the course of the, the stock market or anything like this, you are not going to draw an enormous amount of attention. The second one is I did an awful lot of fact-checking, so I, I tried not to write anything unless I had uh, presentable evidence of that being so. I think you have to do that anyway if you write these days, because otherwise social media will tear you to bits. But in this case, when you are writing about China, and I think it's, it's doubly uh, important. And I think I was in a slightly better position to do that then a lot of people who write about, let's say, leadership or executives. Because I come from a diplomatic background where they taught us the very, very hard way to quote everything according to specific guidelines that have been agreed by higher authorities. So basically, you know, uh, a lot of people have an opinion about where the economy is going, but I try to rely on sources that are official and that are demonstrable. So because of this, I think I did as good a job as I can to to, to be candid without censoring myself.
1: Yeah, you do a great job of, of bringing a real diversity of voices, executives that you had worked with and coached, as well as a lot of attention to what was going on in the press, as well as weaving in history. So thank you for that contribution. To get personal here for a second, Gabor, we have both spent a long time in China. But on your side, you made a conscious choice. You were global, had a diplomatic career. Decades back, this is going back to the early 2000s, to head to China, learn, invest, set up a business. And as you look on this arc, and as you wrote the book, how has China accelerated or impacted your career?
0: That is a good question because my career going any other way would be a counterfactual. So I, I cannot quite imagine how it would go if I hadn't arrived in China. But what, what the listeners have to know if they haven't followed my work in general is that I was a junior diplomat in the European Security Organization before I came to China. I was at that time working in the former Yugoslavia. I am Hungarian. I, I left my country for my studies and also I was an expat kid. So already at that time, I was very, like I was a relativist about where you live. I went over to China, and then I found myself in the middle as a as a how do you say uh, a newly minted consultant. I found myself in the middle of China's preparations for the 2008 Olympics and the 2010 Shanghai World Expo, which is as a supercharged, adrenaline infused. Business environment as you can possibly imagine. So I was I was learning the trade. I had a small team. I didn't really know an awful lot about how consulting is usually done. But in China at that time, it wasn't done that way anyway. But as long as you showed up at work in the morning, you could achieve something remarkable because the uh, the growth and the energy just basically propelled you forward. I am I consider myself extremely lucky to have witnessed that time in China. You
1: are a global executive coach. I'm curious, as you think about transferable skills, how does constantly seeing new things in China serve you as you work with executives in other parts of the world?
0: Well, there are are two connection points that I Cannot tire of pointing out one of them is that we keep talking about the Asian century and and Asia is uh, To a large extent centered around China right now So it doesn't really matter where you are in the world if you're in, in in Berlin or Boston or Tokyo If you do international business, you must figure out your relationship with China in one way or another so ultimately that relationship can be can be zero. It can be that you decide not to invest or not to participate in the Chinese market, but of course you need reasons for that, not only for your own decision, but also to sell that decision to all kinds of stakeholders. So this is one uh, of the ways why it's important for everybody to, to understand how China works and how you as a leader relates to China. But the other one is that China in a way is always a bit of a glimpse into the future. Now through this wormhole it's not always a future that you like seeing. So it's not not always a how do you say a very positive picture about the future. It can be well let me let me mention two things one one positive and one not so positive. Or let me put it the other way around let's start with the negative. So if you look at the environment as an issue in business starting from the health of your employees and what kind of insurance you need and what kind of policies you have to um, put in place to protect people from the harmful, um, let's say, influences of of anything from from, uh, air pollution, water pollution, global warming and so on. China has had to worry about these things earlier and much more than most of the places from which people are going to listen to this podcast. And uh, obviously, in terms of policies, in terms of efforts, it's not only earlier, but it's also much more dramatic uh, because of the scale of China itself and the scale of the Chinese economy and the scale of the problem, including the fact that most people in that country cannot protect themselves because the average personal income is relatively low. So they look to governments and corporations to put certain measures in place. Uh, On the other hand, if you work with China or in China, you also glimpse into the future in terms of how business works. Things like being agile, things like being lean, things like having to be flexible, launching products and services earlier and then fix them on the go when you find out that there is a bug. In this respect as well, because China is a relatively new and very dynamically developing economy. Chinese leaders and international leaders in China had to address these issues uh, earlier and also to a much larger scale. And that makes you learn fast. If there is pressure and there is speed, it makes you learn fast.
1: As you extend that to the the long list of executives you have worked, with, a lot of them were, were sent over to China to, to get something done, to take the next step in their career. What, what do you feel has benefited most of them? Is it this agility and ability to work through fast-paced environments? Or is there another piece there that you would call out that's helped them in their kind of post-China careers?
0: There is no end to this list depending on what kind of business you run, what kind of person you are in the first place, and what are the issues that you try to solve. Uh, So it it, it is a long list, but there are a couple of of issues that that rise above the others, and I, I single them out in the book as well. So I give individual parts in the book uh, to speed. First of all, this is what I heard all the time. Mm -hmm. So basically speed and scale, they grow quite, uh, how do you say, perceptibly through a kind of shock, adjustment shock. And people who are delegated to China or started working with China, they suddenly have to, for example, work with 10 times the people, 100 times the, uh, the area, the geographic area of responsibility, the same kind of uh, upgrade in terms of size of investment. And they have to work faster, they have to make decisions faster, and they have to make decisions on a much scarcer set of data. So this is something whenever they move back to their home countries or another country, or they start uh, managing international businesses, because it also happens that The China branch just grows up into an Asia-Pacific headquarter. So these people, of course, what they learn there, they cannot unlearn again. And it's so much so that I work with Western executives who are resettling to Europe after, let's say, five years, ten years in China, and they have to readjust to their own cultures, Hmm. to the the speed, to the scale, to the kind of unflexibility of relationships, um, Uh, For example, one of the uh, managers I quote in the book complained that when he went back to Germany, it was impossible to fire a supplier because he was in the automotive industry. And he said in in that industry, basically, these kind of uh, supplier-client relations, they last decades. And you cannot just fire one of them like you can in China. So this is definitely one. The second one is a different kind of focus on your people. Because in the Chinese leadership environment, employees are not first of all, they are not protected so well by the social security system. So very few people have uh, the proper protection against losing their jobs and unemployment benefits. Many of them look after elderly, elderly relatives who, um, who might have health issues and they are not uh, fully covered. Their kids' education costs a lot of money. So people who work in China, they start looking at the responsibility of the leader and the firm over their people's lives in a completely different way. It Many of them are quite unhappy to step into a quasi-parental role as a leader in China at the beginning. I mean, many Western leaders simply don't like that. But they get used to the responsibility and they, they figure out their own way to deal with it. And finally, interestingly, a, they get used to a diversity of leadership styles, mm. which is, is more common in China than, than in the West, in, in Western leadership, we have a couple of big sources of leadership behaviors, you know, the Industrial Revolution, scientific management, and then again, the Second World War, the way people had to mobilize lots of resources in a very short time. And finally, this kind of second Industrial Revolution, with the matrix organizations and personal responsibility. But it has always been fairly technocratic and fairly top-down, or, or let me say fairly structured. Whereas in China, there is a plethora of different models. So, you know, there is the traditional Confucian and Taoist model, and then there is the communist model, and then there is the scientific model from the, from the early 2000s. And they have their ebbs and flows in many different directions. So Western executives, they get used to the diversity of ways to lead people.
1: So very much expanding that toolkit. And I love what you said there about speed and scale. It's probably the best training ground you can get for Silicon Valley. You mentioned that people are figuring out their relationship with China. And again, to get personal, COVID, China was looking bad, then they were looking good. Now they're looking bad again, right? Depending who you read or or where you get your information from. What has been your relationship with China? Where is that Going. What is the calculus for you right now?
0: So you mean professionally or rather personally?
1: I would say both. You are now based in Budapest, but you continue to be global. There was a decision there to not be in China right now.
0: Well, when I left China, I always imagined it in a different way. The backstory is that I it happened to me twice: once in twenty twenty and once in twenty twenty two that I went on a brief business trip and I wasn't uh, allowed to return to China for over half a year while my family was back in Shanghai. In 2020, it was b- before, because of COVID itself. I went over to a, a business trip in Europe and then suddenly COVID hit and China closed its borders to everybody but citizens. And when the situation seemed a little bit more secure, in March 2022, and again, I left China and then I was horrified in two or three days to see online that the so-called zero COVID policy started, which again from March uh, until about August, uh, we, we were just waiting for the borders to open. But at that point we decided that it just simply uh, it's not a sustainable situation. So my wife joined me here in Europe. So at this point I didn't choose to leave China, but I started basically doing the same thing as I always did from Shanghai, except traveling the other way around. So in this respect, it's not a dramatic lifestyle change except for the place of the base. Professionally speaking, it's quite interesting because uh, Chinese companies with European ambitions started finding me. Yeah. Last year, I acquired three or four new clients and two of them were Chinese companies who had a, a serious strategy in Europe. And I think this is a trend that people who are interested in China should definitely have an eye on
1: a super interesting trend. As Chinese come out, what are you seeing? What are the, the key themes that they're facing as they start to work in Western business environments?
0: This is a, an evolutionary tale, so to speak. When I arrived in China in 2002 and then started up my company in 2005, there was very little international expertise in China, apart from foreigners themselves. So really, if a a company wanted to bridge China with the rest of the world, you needed foreigners to do it. But in the meantime, two generations of very smart Chinese managers studied abroad, that they returned, worked for multinational companies. And at the beginning, when I started my, especially my coaching business, but even my training business in China, most of the time, I trained and coached international managers there. But then a new addition, let's say, after the 2010 expo, was that I started working more and more with Chinese managers who were promoted to international leadership positions in Western multinational companies. By the way, it's not an exclusively Chinese thing. I did the same uh, with Japanese, Filipino, Korean managers, but in China the volume is much bigger. And then came the Chinese companies themselves with their international ambitions. Now, one challenge is that as a Chinese leader, you can grow up to a very, very high level strategic position, being responsible for thousands or even tens of thousands of people and millions and millions of dollars or euros of investment without ever having been in an international position. So this is something that doesn't happen to you in many markets. But in China, businesses grow so big, you can already be at a, at a C-suit or a VP level when you first have to do business in a foreign language or uh, learn about how to do business with foreigners. So this is a traditional problem that, that lasts. Large Chinese pharmaceutical, chemical, automotive energy companies, the people that they send abroad, many of them have very little international experience. And then in these recent years, an added problem is that because the isolation of the last couple of years, international and Chinese business people, again, don't know what to expect from each other. They haven't met in many years. The data flows have uh, decreased significantly. There is very little trust on the two sides of the equation. And Chinese managers who run Chinese businesses abroad don't feel comfortable with the environment that surrounds Chinese investment right now. They can feel the approach, the attitude to China is not the same as it was.
2: You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach Michael Winderoth. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview.
1: Trust, it feels like it is definitely at an all-time low. I've heard that from, from many of my clients as soon as you bring up the, the topic around China and then clearly on the headlines. You're right there in the center as kind of the bridge. Are, are there ways that this can be accelerated, building trust at the level of executives we're talking about, but we can extend this to the country level? Comments here, Gabor? You, you've certainly seen a lot of different angles on this.
0: Well, certainly. First, I would say be happy if you're in business. Because as you know, in a previous life, I was a a junior diplomat. I worked a lot with diplomats. And believe me, diplomats and politicians, they have their shields up. So if um, relations deteriorate between two countries, then their diplomats and politicians immediately find themselves exposed. And then they are very, very cautious about what they tell the other side, or even if they communicate, even if they engage with the other side. I, um, I don't meet that many strongly nationalistic business people because most businesses ultimately rely on external resources. I mean, that's the way you make money. You find external resources, which can be information. It can be oil. It can be, it can be digital data, whatever it is. And you turn it into value in your home market. So business people have it much easier. And I, you know, when I, when I hear one of these news, for example, that one of the governments restricts the flow of, let's say, certain kind of technology or certain kind of investment to the other country, and then immediately businesses start, you know, looking, looking for the shortcuts and looking for the back doors so that they can keep doing business with each other anyway, and then in traditional media, but much more in social media, people immediately start taking sides. Like, who's right? Are the businesses traitors? Are they irresponsible? Or are the governments idiotic and, and dinosaurs to, to st- try to stop the flow of technology? But let's realize that everybody's doing their jobs here. It has always been like that. Now, if you're an individual person and you feel the, um, the trust uh, ebbing, there is actually an awful lot you can do. And most of those involve just keeping the personal communication up it doesn't matter what you talk about it can be it can be business it can be that you're working on one project team and there is another project team in china you choose the person with whom you have the best online chemistry or maybe you met them a couple of times and you had a good chemistry with each other or you ha- you are in a comparable position function in the teams And then you reach out and then you ask them, listen, why does your boss not reply the email or how do you usually do this? Or even just found out that you, I don't know, root for the same football team and you can find a uh, a conversation. Now it's not easy with China because basically all the digital channels that we use outside of China are blocked in China. So one sometimes rather painful sacrifice that, international leaders that I work with have to make is download and learn how to use WeChat. Because this is, this is an internationally available app that people who have no China connections don't really use. But once you get on it, and once you find some of your key contacts on it, then you start communicating much more intensively with your Chinese counterparts. And it's well worth it. This is actually in the book. WeChat is at the core of re-engaging with people on the Chinese side.
1: Yeah, indeed. If if I'm not on WeChat, I feel like I lose that bond and connection and what's going on with a lot of my old Chinese colleagues. You do. To go into the the book, the, the title here is about the golden age. It is always so hard to write about technology or China because it is shifting so fast. Has this era passed? We, we are seeing the headlines. We are seeing the, the hawkish talk going on. But how's this era passed? And what's still relevant from that era that leaders and managers can take away as we enter uh, a different, certainly geopolitical environment?
0: So, first of all, yes, it has passed. And there is plenty of evidence in the book. I am going back to a policy paper in the mid-2010s that basically announced the end of this uh, golden age for international business in China based on uh, research done by Roland Berger. But also if we look at another couple of important indicators such as the share of import and export in China's overall GDP then the McKinsey Institute has a so-called exposure index international exposure index which measures anything from tourism to people learning foreign languages to how much foreign media people consume. So around the same time, we are talking about somewhere between 2014 and 16, there has also been a turnaround. And interestingly, the world's exposure to China kept growing, but China's exposure to the world started uh, dropping. So whichever way you want to... uh, measure it with tangible or intangible things. But China's very strong interest in making it easy for the rest of the world to do business there has decreased. What does this mean? So first of all, of course, the book is written from the perspective of international executives in China. But then we have to reserve a little bit of empathy for the other side, because what is bad news for international business in China is not necessarily bad news for China. China has grown up in a number of ways, and uh, it can provide for itself in many areas that it couldn't before. So, uh, of, of course, making cars uh, or making pharmaceuticals uh, are very good examples. They've heavily relied on international technology. They heavily relied on even international companies to manufacture these things for them. And this is not true anymore. Where are we going from here? Obviously, China has built up a very strong international presence and it still has very high international ambitions. As long as this is the case, China is not going to cut itself off from the world. But if you look at foreigners in China, there are a couple of things that you don't even have to predict. We can already see very, very clear trends. One of them is, contrary to popular wisdom, the number of foreigners in China is not decreasing. But the number of foreigners from major economies is decreasing. People from the United States, France, Germany, UK, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and so on. The people who are stepping into their shoes, so to speak, are people from the so-called global south. They are a different kind of foreigner because typically expats from major economies, they paid for themselves or they were paid by their employers. Everything from accommodation to insurance to education. Actually, very often it's China that subsidizes their existence through, for example, scholarships or or large programs by state-owned companies. So there will be fewer people from these countries, more specified, more, more specialized. There is a specific list of expertise that China wants from major economies, and it's easier to get a visa if you fall into that category. And also a couple of other changes in how uh, experts will live their lives in China, how they will behave. So for example, it's getting more difficult for families and easier for single people. Much more easy if you do speak Mandarin and so on.
1: That's very interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. To lob the the large question at, at you, souring on China and pessimism, where are you sitting on this?
0: How are you feeling about it? Well, I mean, whether you're optimistic or pessimistic, it depends on your personal objectives. If, if China doesn't do what you want it to do, then you are going to feel disappointed. If, if China works for you, then obviously you, you love it. So I talk to all kinds of people. And first of all, put yourself into the shoes of the media that writes about this. Currently, since uh, international journalists really have a hard time in China right now, it is much easier to interview outgoing expats from China than the expats who are still in China. Right. There is this saying about dolphins taking sailors to the shore and then sailors saying, well, actually, dolphins take people everywhere, but those who are taken out to the open sea never live to tell their tale. So it's a little bit like that. There are lots of international experts, investors, entrepreneurs who are doing extremely well in China, but they are probably not going to I don't know. Give, give so willingly. Give an interview to BBC, and it's not such a great story, you know. Uh, yeah. I don't know Nancy settling in Shenzhen, opening a company, and doing well for herself. Uh, why would people read newspaper? Having said that, there are there are I think a little bit more objective sides to optimism and pessimism because uh, China's international relations are measurably deteriorating. So if you if you look at visits to china and visits from china on any level academic exchange for example the the source of uh, students in china international students in china has virtually dried up also exchange on all levels china's participation in international conferences in professional associations and so on and even if you look at government relations so there is much less exchange and i think people on both sides are underestimate the long-term consequences of this. And Chinese managers in China and also international managers who are heavily invested in China, many of them the, uh, the interview subjects in the book, they also underestimate how quickly the world forgets. So China is unavoidable in international business today But if I go to international headquarters, people really try their best to avoid it. And that that is very, very unfortunate. You know, it's much difficult to get a visa to China right now. There are much less foreigners, which for most foreign visitors, it means it's less fun. I visited China again after over a year of visiting there. And I can tell you, if you you want to eat your comfort food in, in, in Shanghai or in Beijing right now, you have a much harder job than three years ago. So I think... I think both sides should make much more of an effort to, to, to keep the dialogue up. Otherwise, um, not only the China plans of international businesses, but also China's international plans could be in jeopardy as well.
1: This point about all the stories that aren't being told, how on a real practical level do you find out what's going on the ground? You've clearly got your network, but how does the average person get to the real China? practical things here for people out there. Where do you pick up the, the, the stories of what's really happening versus the, the government line or the, the Western press line?
0: Well, in a way, that's what the book is for. And this is something I mentioned yeah. in the, the foreword of the book, is that people who have first-hand experience and sometimes recent first-hand experience about China are closer to you than you think. Just, just think about levels of separation. Who could be the person who has recently visited China or has regular contacts with China? multinational companies have very int- intensive interactions with China. When I do international speeches, keynote speeches, then I simply ask the audience, who knows somebody who works for a Chinese company in your own country? And the number of the hands that go up uh, grow year by year because, because Chinese companies are, are, are present everywhere. But even if not that, there are lots of second generation Chinese people or recently immigrated Chinese people who speak your local language or speak English very well. They have vibrant contacts with the rest of the world. Actually, my argument in the last chapter of the book, which is about the future of uh, expats in China, is that a lot of, and I'm using air quotes here, a lot of Mm -hmm. China business is going to be done outside of the PRC in the next decade because it's not only international companies and international executives who are uh, looking for opportunities elsewhere, but also Chinese companies and Chinese executives. So there is a very vibrant community of Chinese people all over the world with whom you can do China business and who have firsthand and recent information about what's happening in China. I'm not saying don't read newspapers, but, but definitely you can, you can balance out the stories that you read in the newspapers with the stories that you hear from them.
1: Gabor, to shift our discussion, one of the central focuses of this podcast is around power and influence, which we can look at through the lens of leadership, we can look at through the lens of governments and governmental leaders. There is clearly a lot from the playbook of how one builds power, which we can learn from the Chinese government and how they're increasing their influence around the world, People think it's very monolithic, but China is actually very diverse and you're moving in speed and scale, where if you've got more power and influence, you have immense leverage. This is an open topic. I'm very curious lessons of of power and influence here, Gabor.
0: Well, that makes me recall a Chinese executive at the Swiss firm Logitech, who was one of my first executive clients. And at that time, um, I had been in China for a couple of years I think it must have been something like three or four years. And like any other foreigner who arrives in China and starts dealing with leadership, my head was full of the stereotypes that, that we get. So um, Chinese leadership, what is Chinese leadership? You know, Half of the time we think it's something that comes from Confucius, and uh, we try to find it in modern China, and the other half of the time we think typical Chinese leadership is what leaders at state-owned enterprises do in China. And um, as I was coaching this executive, I, I said Chinese leadership style, Chinese leadership style, a couple of times. And he told me, Gabor, could you please stop saying Chinese leadership style? It doesn't exist. So we had a very interesting conversation about it. And I think the insights that I gained in the subsequent 15 years or so, they confirmed uh, in my head that so China is an ancient culture, but it is a young nation. So what a leader is supposed to do and be and have is much less consolidated along history and traditions than, let's say, even in the United States, but certainly in places like Europe or Japan, because leadership traditions haven't been continuous. So Chinese leaders are basically thrown into this cavalcade of, yes, there is traditional Taoist and Confucian ideas about what a leader is supposed to be and do. But then there is also the revolutionary spirit and very disruptive attitude of the Communist Party, which obviously uh, one of the outspoken leadership philosophies of the party was to eradicate the Confucian way of leadership. And then came a fairly technocratic era, starting with Deng Xiaoping and going up to Hu Jintao, as the scientific development And then lots of little subcultures of of leadership, you know, the serving leadership style of of, of firms and leaders like Alibaba and its founder, Jack Ma, alternative technocratic ways of of looking at business and leadership. And Chinese leaders, they are switching back and forth between these in a very, very flexible, agile and pragmatic way. And more than one international CEO or CSU leader who spent some time in China, this is what they learned. Because it could be confusing at the beginning, but it also allows you to develop your own leadership style. So if you are if you are not a, how do you say not a not a dominant not a task focused leader, but you have a fairly social coaching or serving or visionary style, in China you are you are going to find ways to get results with a uh, leadership style that might not be. Um, so predictable, for example, or or might not build visible authority. But it ultimately works, and in China, that's the only thing that matters, if it works, if it it keeps you away from harm and your people and you deliver. Uh, Simply, Chinese leaders do not care about anything at all beyond that. Of course, agility and speed and volume, they just make this learning curve much steeper. And more recently, as I talk to international leaders, another thing that they learn is to harness technology in leadership. Mm. Because um, Chinese teams are big, fast, must be quite flexible. Um, a lot of people, I think, that listen to us will not like this, but you know, the, the party that is the ultimate leader of the nation harnesses technology to f- anything, from allocating resources to um, Uh, making sure that people don't break the rules. And Chinese corporate leaders and also international leaders in China, they learn from this too. And then they find out that this little box that we call a mobile phone, it has so much data about so many people. So when I'm looking for an employee, why, why not look there, right? So, for example, when they want to recruit people that they trust, now a lot of international managers use WeChat and a kind of personal Referral system that if you get your cousin or your neighbor or, or your former classmate into the company, then you get some kind of reward or, or, or if nothing else, visibility and a handshake. And it works spectacularly. Uh, delegating tasks, for example, how much easier it is to, to keep track of tasks that are delegated through high level um, uh, technological tools. Now, just imagine an Italian or a German leader coming home to their home country and trying to introduce something like that in their home country. So I think, yes, chuckle, I think is the, is the right way to react to this. But obviously in the longer run, these these trends, I think they point in China's way.
1: One of the words that comes to mind is one that I've always used about China, which kind of came up as you were talking about that is, is just the word pragmatic, Chinese being very pragmatic. But I really love this point. You, talk about with technology, harnessing technology, the willingness to adapt it, try it. And it is certainly one of the areas I see a lot of Western leaders have a hard time keeping up with.
0: One thing that I try to make people understand in the book, and also it is one of the first things that I try to make people understand when I coach in the East-West leadership, leaders who work with China or they're soon to visit China or be delegate, I mean, sent to China, is you have to understand how China's social security system works. Once you understand that, you understand, for example, why Chinese people are impatient to the point of arrogance when it comes to salary raises and promotions, for example. do you understand why they have an issue with confidentiality and transparency. So I tear apart in the book concepts like Guangxi. And because you, you have to understand the reality on the ground and you will understand that Chinese people are simply forced to learn much faster. So if you're in the US or in Europe, you are not so afraid of making a mistake or you're not so afraid of, I don't know, I mean, being on the wrong side of your, of your boss's opinion because you're protected in many ways that Chinese people are not. So they have to learn and they have to adopt under much bigger pressure and much faster. In the kind of environment where it's like 100 times the size and the scale and, and 10 times the speed, what's the consequence of missing something? What's the consequence of disagreement in the team?
1: Gavor, as we come to the end, any final point that we did not get into that you really want to emphasize, whether related to the book or kind of the book as the launching pad for better understanding China and thinking about it as we go forward?
0: Well, one perhaps is that I started doing the research and I started conducting the interviews for this book before the pandemic. And then I interviewed people all through the pandemic and most of the writing took place afterwards. But it's amazing how much the world has changed in the meantime. lots of people, they absolutely seriously, uh, when I meet them, they tell me, well, you know, all these things about international expats and business trips and conferences and so on. And well, this is pretty much gone now, right? Because due to the pandemic, everybody went online and we conduct so much of our international teamwork through technological tools. And people assume that those technological tools are this kind of culture-neutral area, uh, like an international airport, which pretty much works the same way everywhere in the world, but but it's not, it's not. very Very soon they find out that if they are in the West and they have to work with a team virtually from China or another Asian country, or the other way around, you are in China and you have to work with foreigners uh, from there virtually, you find out what has changed is that you don't have the preparation time. Because when you meet people personally, then you read countless nonverbal clues and then you arrive at an airport and check in a hotel, you have a, a general impression about their culture. When you switch from one Microsoft team call to another, you don't have time to prepare culturally. And very, very soon you'll find out that the cultural glitches can be just as tragic or even more than face-to-face. So I would say, even if somebody does international business online, virtually, I think there are some useful insights in books like mine, Mm -hmm. because it's just human communication through a different channel.
1: Yeah. Sounds like there's another book in there waiting to be written. Gabor, how do people best reach you and pick up Dragon Suit?
0: For years, I always said that the best way is to just find my full name online so uh, whichever app you use to listen to this podcast there is my full name gabor holstein there and if you type it into your browser you will find very soon either linkedin or one of my websites which has like a contact tab and then you can just simply send me an email but actually dragon suit as a search clause is, is taking over my name as the, as the easiest way to find me. I uh, went on Amazon, I went on Google, and I couldn't believe that there is no book uh, called Dragon Suit yet. It looked such an, like such an obvious term to me, but there wasn't. And now if you just type in Dragon Suit, you will find me in seconds.
1: Awesome. So typing up Dragon Suit, Gabor Holsch will appear. A pleasure as always to be able to talk about this topic with you, a very important topic, and congratulations on the publication. Thank you, Gabor.
0: Thank you very much for having me. And I really hope that anybody who reads the book after this interview is going to enjoy it.
2: Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwenderoth.com.